Welcome to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. My name is Bill Scher. I'm joined today by the author of How the Right Lost Its Mind, published by St. Martin's Press. He is also the contributing editor to the Weekly Standard and the host of their Daily Standard podcast, as well as a contributor to MSNBC, Charlie Sykes. Thanks so much for being on the show. It is good to be with you. Uh, now, you were a conservative talk radio host in Wisconsin for more than 20 years, a conservative in good standing. What what prompted you to write a book called How the Right Lost Its Mind? Well, uh, the, uh, Donald Trump, um, the, the 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 rise of Donald Trump and the what, what I've compared. I, I borrow this from Jonah Goldberg, um, the the rolling invasion of the body snatchers phenomenon that we saw among uh, Republicans and conservatives who looked at Donald Trump and said, yeah, uh, that's uh, that's what we stand for. We we can live with all of that. Uh, you know, part of what happened was, you know, and you, you point out that, you know, I'd been very much part of the conservative movement and uh, I mean, really integrally involved in it on a number of different levels. And I really thought I knew what the conservative movement was about. I thought I knew who conservatives were. And so watching the Trumpian takeover and the way in which conservatives um, acquiesced to him and more recently enabled him um, has been a profoundly soul-crushing, disillusioning experience. And I really had to step back and say, okay, how did this happen? What did I miss? You know, uh, was was this a one-time event or – uh, was the dysfunction there for a very long time, and I simply ignored it. And I'm still wrestling with a lot of that. Uh, is, is there an easy answer to that question? Did you miss something that was in the conservative bloodstream years ago? Or was this something that was uh, late blossoming that was really Trump-driven? Uh, no, I, I, I when I started writing the book, uh, I was going to argue that it was a uh, it was a hostile takeover. It was a black swan event, you know, an otherwise healthy movement that was, uh, you know, some somehow, um, you know, captured by this guy that parachuted in from Manhattan. Uh, but um, I don't think that's a sustainable position. The the dysfunction was the pre-existing condition. There had been a lot of these things that had been latent. And I think you know the way that that i think of it now is that they were they were a recessive gene in conservatism whether it's the nativism uh, the xenophobia the misogyny you know and up until 2016 they had been kept within bounds uh, the, the the fever swamps had been had been walled off so did i miss things yeah i think that uh, to a certain extent um i and uh, uh, many others uh, in the conservative intellectual movement or the talkers you know, imagine that that the conservative movement uh, had become uh, more, you know, uh, focusing on policies and issues, small government, deficit reduction, uh, economic growth. When in fact, you know, if if we had stopped and looked around, realized that uh, that uh, th- these latent issues, uh, the the you know, in, in, including race. That we had ignored, that we simply had thought were the postcards from the the fringes, actually were bigger than we had imagined, and we didn't push back hard enough. There is an ongoing debate on the left: uh, how much race was a factor in Trump's election? Was this really more economic driven because the white working class have been beaten down by 
trade policies and, and, and the like. Uh, and therefore, uh, we should not make race central to this discussion. And of course, the counter argument is, of course, race is central to this discussion. He ran, Trump ran an outright race baiting campaign. He attacked Black Lives Matter. He attacked immigrants. Uh, you seem to be indicating you, you think race is a big issue here. It is. A, it is an issue, but I think it is more complex than that. I I think that there's a um, a cultural aspect to this in, uh, in which race is a is a significant factor. Look, I don't know how many of the Trump voters and, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that the Trump voters were all uh, motivated by racial animus. And, and I don't know, you know how many Republican voters you know, share those prejudices. But I will say that there's no way that a political party that had taken racial issues seriously would have ever embraced a Donald Trump or would have ever thought it was tolerable or acceptable in any way. So what was exposed at minimum was an indifference and an insensitivity to the issue which was really remarkable. Uh, and I think it was remarkable to people at the time. You might remember uh, Paul Ryan in the midst of the campaign uh, called out Donald Trump uh, after he attacked that Mexican-American judge in the Trump U case, said it was a textbook case of racism, which was, um, I, I, I thought, uh, laudatory. But on the other hand, what Ryan, who's a good friend of mine, uh, went on to say was, yes, this is a textbook example of racism, but we should still put Donald Trump in the Oval Office. And I think uh, that was uh, that was one of the tipping points for the conservative movement, which was to say, OK, we, we, we understand what he's doing. We understand uh, the way he is demagoguing the issues, uh, blaming brown people uh, who, you know, brown uh, immigrants uh, who are rapists, uh, uh, the, the Chinese, others, the Black Lives Matter, in order to gin up his base. People understood what he was doing, but were willing to accept it or at least look the other way. I, I do want to ask you more about uh, Paul Ryan, uh, but to stay on on race for, for a little more, you talk in the book about how William F. Buckley, who led the National Review, was considered the intellectual leader of, of conservatism for, for decades. Uh, he played a role uh, in the 1960s and beyond trying to keep conservatism uh, separate from so-called crackpots, like the John Birch Society and other conspiracy theorist types. Uh, and he also evolved on race. He was anti-Civil Rights Act during the 60s, but then later in his life, he acknowledged you know, federal intervention uh, didn't need to happen to uh, help solve that problem. He, he took on Pat Buchanan in the 1990s for his uh, anti-Semitism. It would seem as if conservatism was evolving on race and bigotry issues. Uh, and clearly you had hoped it was on that path. Is there a backslide here? Uh, or well, let me, let, let me, yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, this, this is a, this is a great point. Um, the, and, 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 and Buckley's record on race is awfully interesting because I mean, he, he took a, um, pretty indefensible position on race when it goes back to the 1950s. But, but, and he, and I think he would have said that later. He, he actually did say that later. So yes, I did think that the evolution that you saw in people like Buckley was real, uh, not to mention this whole new generation of conservatives, the, you know, the Jack Kemp conservatives who came up, the much more inclusive conservatives who very, very consciously uh, set out to say, okay, you know, that, that tradition, that tradition out there um, does not represent who we are. We are changing the definition of conservatism and making it more inclusive. 
And I really did think that that was the new conservative movement, which again goes back to the shock of what's what's happening. And I think what 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 I think happened was that many of the quote unquote thought leaders got ahead of the base because at the same time that you had the conservative intellectual movement saying, okay, this is part of our past that we really need uh, to put behind us. At the same time, you had a Republican electoral strategy that was based on the Southern strategy that was based on um, running up the totals among white working class voters on a lot of these cultural issues. And so I do think that there was a little bit of a turning the blind eye to it. In other words, we're going to run on very, very high-minded conservative principles, but we rely upon the votes of people who may not fully be on board with those ideas, but you know, maybe picking up some of the uh, the other signals that uh, that, are, that are out there. And I, I will be honest with you that that uh, in retrospect, I have to ask myself, OK, you know, when I heard these kinds of you know comments about race, um, you know, did, was I ignoring them or did I just simply think that that was your drunken uncle, you know, at, at Thanksgiving who you ignore and you figure, well, you know, yeah, he he, he he's he's never going to be driving the bus. And, Unfortunately, he ended up driving the bus. Well, you're you're not a you're not a David Brooks conservative. You're not a, a Charles Krauthammer conservative. You're not in some uh, Acela corridor ivory tower. You're in Wisconsin. You're in the heartland. Thank you. Um, and you had this very famous interview with Donald Trump before the Wisconsin primary, where you you, you took him to task, uh, and. When, and then Trump loses that primary to Ted Cruz, and people thought, "Here's here's Midwestern nice, Wisconsin nice, saying Donald Trump's not our kind of guy." Um, at that moment, you must have thought that you still were uh, part of the conservative heartland. And then Trump ends up swiping Wisconsin from Hillary Clinton. Um, so, if in in your in your immediate neighborhood, can you get a sense what what happened there? Well, yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. Um, I had been pushing back on uh, pushing back against uh, Donald Trump since really since the moment he came down that that golden escalator. Uh, I, I think I confessed to having Trump derangement syndrome in September of 2015 because I, I, I thought, look, this is you know, we have spent the last 20 years saying we are not racist, sexist, xenophobes. Why would we then embrace this man who is the cartoon version of every stereotype the left has ever had against us. And uh, I, I think the extraordinary thing about what happened here in Wisconsin is that our voters and the people that I interacted with were, were not uh, were under no illusions who Donald Trump was. Uh, he is he was deeply underwater here in Wisconsin because the, most of the other talk radio hosts, I was not the only one, um, were, were not providing him the kind of air cover that, say, Rush Limbaugh or Laura Ingram or Sean Hannity was was providing him. And um, we made the strategic decision, we, that's, that implies more of a coordination than in fact was, in Wisconsin to try to block Donald Trump by embracing Ted Cruz, which seems very ironic now in retrospect, trust me. Um, and Ted Cruz was – the reason I'm mentioning this is that Ted Cruz is not a good fit for Wisconsin Republicans. Uh, he was would never have been the first choice here. Marco Rubio or Scott Walker would have been much more of a choice. But the voters here in Wisconsin were so dialed in, were so savvy that they understood what was necessary in order to uh, provide a speed bump or, or to block Trump's nomination. I mean it was, it was that intense. So – I, I was not out of touch with 
the conservative base in uh, on, on that day when Donald Trump bizarrely called into my show, which was March 28, 2016. And he, he loses Wisconsin by double digits. And we know what happened after that. But the extraordinary thing for me then was watching these folks who I knew understood who Donald Trump was one by one flip as the year went on. The pull of tribalism, this and mix my metaphors, the, the this gravitational pull, you know, back to back into their their their, their corners um, and one after another deciding that, uh, well, it was a binary choice. And well, he's the nominee and we have to support him despite um, knowing that the man was utterly um, immoral, a con man, a serial liar, and completely unfit for office. And yet, in the political dynamic, smart, savvy Republicans and conservatives decided that they were going to pull the lever for him. And, and that really was uh, – that was, that was a remarkable thing to experience and watch. So you mentioned tribalism. What, what is the tribal – Impulse. I, I mean, I think in the book you do touch upon you. You try to keep your focus on how the right lost its mind, uh, but you do mention that you feel the left did things to agitate and irritate conservatives uh, and create a backlash of sorts. Um, is is that the is the tribal impulse to just be with Trump because he's a Republican, or is it a tribal impulse to make the left mad? Oh, I think there's a little bit of, uh, yeah, the, the, there is that, that whole uh, notion that, uh, that if, if we just cause uh, liberals' heads to explode, if we just induce liberal tears, then we have won, then we have succeeded. That's really become ingrained in our, in our culture. Um, a lot of this is not pro-Trump as much as anti-anti-Trumpism, which really is not about ideas. And when I talk about tribalism, I think that one of the things that, that that I learned over the last couple of years, and I think a lot of people, I'm certainly not alone in this, I don't claim to be, uh, that that those of us who thought that politics was about ideas, uh, policies, accomplishments, uh, were missing what was happening because politics is increasingly about attitude. It is about uh, it, it is about identification and culture. It's my team versus your team which explains what is otherwise inexplicable, why you have conservatives willing to take non-conservative positions if, in fact, the great leader changes his, his mind on all of this. But yeah, it, it is – in Wisconsin, um, the divisions between right and left are uh, – became quite bitter. Uh, the, the whole Wisconsin nice thing can certainly be overplayed. But you know, we went through the, uh, the Scott Walker recalls. We went through Act 10. Um, the, the level of vitriol and vilification on both sides uh, is, is hard to overstate. And after a certain point, you just dislike the people on the other side so much. And because we live in alternative reality worlds, it's certainly easy to do. We've sorted ourselves out, of course, in social media. It's very easy to be in your own echo chamber, but also physically sorting ourselves out. I mean, you look at a map of Wisconsin and Wisconsin has these bright blue areas where there are virtually no conservatives and bright red areas where there are virtually no liberals. So you can go through your life not actually having a conversation with anyone who disagrees with you, which means that it becomes far more easy to uh, vilify someone from the other tribe. Let me shift gears and talk about uh, Paul Ryan. You do you discuss in the book how the right lost its mind. Uh, you, you have a section called Dumping Private Ryan. Uh, now, Paul Ryan was someone who was in Washington seen as a leader of of conservative intellectuals who have 
pushing conservative policy ideas as the House Budget Committee chair, Ways and Means chair, and then as Speaker of the House. Uh, he acquiesces to Trump's nomination despite his misgivings. He tries to part with him as best he can to get legislation through, did get a tax reform bill through. And then this year, 2018, says, that's it. I'm going to go home now. I'm going to go back to Wisconsin. Um, what does that tell you about the Paul Ryan story? And what does the Paul Ryan story have to say about conservatism in general? Well, you know, for me, I see this through the lens of the Paul Ryan story. And this is what's been so heartbreaking for me. And and, and, I, and I don't use that word um, lightly. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that because, of course, you know, I, I've known Paul since before he became a congressman. I mean, I, I met him when he you know was just this young guy, young, bright, ambitious guy who I, I actually thought looked like he was 17 years old. And then you spend five minutes talking with him and you realize this is this is a unique individual. And for years, first joking and then increasingly seriously, I really wanted him to run for president. I mean, you you, you ask what kind of a conservative I am. I, would, I, I For a long time, I was a Paul Ryan conservative. I really did think he was the intellectual leader of the conservative movement. Um, and what he accomplished was extraordinary, focusing the party on solving the problems, dealing with the debt problem, dealing with entitlements. But also, he was in the process of refocusing the entire conservative approach to poverty and to communities and neighborhoods in a way that's been completely lost now. So uh, I, I had been, I invested a lot of hope in him, let's put it this way. And uh, one of the things at the end of the book, I recommend people, you know, put not your faith in princes, but, um, and I did see him as the, the antithesis of Donald Trump in terms of intelligence, character, um, his approach to these, these issues. So I was hopeful when he was willing to stand up against Donald Trump. I mean, I was hopeful, um, and right up to the election, he was taking a strong stand about Donald Trump's character. And I really was expecting that he would be the alternative future for conservatism. What no one expected, least of all Paul Ryan, was that Donald Trump would be elected president and he would have to work with him. And as a result, he made a Faustian bargain. And and I know that's harsh, but that's what it was. It was a Faustian bargain. He was willing to ignore, acquiesce, enable things that I know that he felt were, were fundamentally wrong in order to get his agenda enacted. And even in the book, before all this happened, you know, I, I, I quoted that line from A Man for All Seasons, you know, what profits at a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? And I said, yes, but for tax cuts, Paul, I mean, is this really worth it for tax cuts? And I think, unfortunately, um, his his uh, decision to appease Donald Trump um, has, has been a uh, – I think it's been deeply unfortunate for the conservative movement because rather than having a different image, a different face – on all of these other issues, um, he's basically allowed the Republican Party to be thoroughly Trumpified. Could you make a case for Ryan? And I mean, tax cuts has been a pretty big element to the conservative uh, platform for a long time. I mean, I, I know Paul. Paul wants more. Paul wants to reform Social Security and Medicare and welfare and, and other things as well. Uh, and I, and obviously, he's not going to get all that. Uh, but. Is it all that wrong for him to say, I, I didn't make Donald Trump the nominee, but he is, and this is what I can get out of this relationship, and at least I got something. I, I do understand that, and and we have had that conversation. 
we've had that conversation about what his responsibility was and and i and, and i and i do respect it the, the the question becomes how much are you willing to get give up for this um how much are you willing to uh to overlook and i think that this year he he you know kind of reached the limit i i i think that um by the middle of this year well the early this year he's fed up he's looking ahead to the future realizing that there's nothing redeemable in the future um but um you know again this is all a matter of of trade-offs and i and i do think that it's that it's unfortunate that someone and i've said this before i probably interviewed or was at events with paul ryan maybe a hundred times and i don't think that's an overstatement uh in which he talked about the the debt bomb, the the need to get a handle on uh, the, the the national debt, the the uh, uh, the consequences of of that of that uh, of, of ongoing deficits and what it meant for future generations. To see him leaving the speaker's job, having enacted tax cuts and spending increases that will result in trillion dollar a year deficits, as far as the eye can see is an extraordinary moment, even leaving aside the moral compromises that he made with Donald Trump. I mean, that 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 really is, um, yeah, he got the tax cuts. These were not the tax cuts he was looking for, by the way. And um, in terms of entitlement reform, that was, uh, that was dead the moment Donald Trump got the nomination. We're talking with Charlie Sykes, author of How the Right Lost Its Mind, published by St. Martin's Press here on the New Books in Politics podcast. Uh, you trace uh, various points in uh, recent history uh, where the conservative movement was sort of moving in this Trumpian populist uh, direction. Uh, what happened in the uh, Bill Clinton presidency that you think is relevant to that that trajectory? Oh, that's a very interesting question because I'm, I'm doing an update on the book and i am been going back and thinking, okay, if I had to do it over again, what would I spend more time with? Um, I think I would have spent more time in the, the role of Newt Gingrich intoxifying our political culture. Um, though that, that was – it, there, there are a lot of things that happened in Bill Clinton's presidency, which which seems like a kinder and gentler era right now, doesn't it? Um, but you know, I, I, ought to, I ought to point out that that from the point of view of the left, and um, and, and I'm, I'm I'm sort of interrupting here, but the this book is about the need for the right to engage in introspection, uh, and I don't really deal with with the left because I think that's their problem. Um, I'm not sensing the kind of of deep introspection that a party that just lost an unlosable election should do. Now let's go back to, to Bill Clinton. You know, Bill Clinton did shatter some of the fundamental norms in our in our political system. I really believe you would not have Donald Trump if it was not for Bill Clinton and the decision uh, by folks uh, in, in the Democratic Party to rally around Bill Clinton, even after he had engaged in the, obviously sexual abuse, who knows what he actually did or did not do, and then lied under oath. Because what that has done is it's created a giant whataboutism loop that, uh, sure, Donald Trump grabs, you know, brags about grabbing women by the pussy. What about uh, Bill Clinton? Well, Donald Trump lies all the time. Well, okay, but what about Bill Clinton? All of that has played a tremendous role. And one of my main concerns is that we're replicating this now with Trump and that the damage of Trumpism is going to continue long after Donald Trump is, is gone, that, that 20, 30 years from now, our kids 
are going to be talking about, well, this is happening because of what people allow Donald Trump to get away with, as opposed to you know going back to Bill Clinton. But again, let's go back to uh, what happened there. Um, in the 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 '90s was really a turning point um, for the, the the conservative movement. One of the things that I actually had not really thought through before I wrote this book was that during the Reagan years, there really was no conservative media. Um, almost all of the major conservative outlets were in decline then. I mean, there was National Review, which was not doing very well. There was no conservative talk radio. There was no Breitbart. Uh, you didn't have Fox News until 1996. Um, n- none of those things were around. Um, and, and yet that was really the high watermark when you think of of, of the conservative movement. And, and, and maybe there's a, there's a connection there. But in the 1990s, not only do you have Newt Gingrich toxifying uh, American politics, but this was when you had the this this is where the new conservative alternative media cut its teeth. Rush Limbaugh, talk radio. I was part of that. Fox News goes on the air. And a lot of it was shaped by the controversies about Bill Clinton and, and, his, and his sex life and his and his credibility, all of which contributed dramatically to the tribalization of, of our politics. Uh, you you speak a good deal about Rush Limbaugh in the book. Uh, he had a quote uh, in the middle of the primaries where he said, um, "If conservatism were the glue, the belief and understanding of deep but commonly understood conservative principles, if that's what defined people as conservative, then Trump would have no chance." Uh, but and then he goes on to say that's not the glue. Uh, and what the thing says, the thing that's in everybody's face, in front of everybody's face, it's apparently so hard to believe. It's this united, virulent opposition to the left and the Democratic Party and Barack Obama. And that, to me, that was a strange thing for Rush to say because he presents himself as the uh, leader of conservative studies. Like that's the point of the show to teach you about conservatism. And he's saying his own audience isn't necessarily bound uh, by that. What, what, what do you think um, Rush's role? In Trump's rise, uh, what what is the interplay there? Uh, well, that that's a very interesting quote because it, because Limbaugh was in in some sense admitting admitting something, um, which was that the conservative movement was really not clear what it was for, but was very clear what it was against, and that if you, you think of conservatism as being fully reactionary, just anti leftism, anti Obamanism, then a lot of it makes a lot of sense, and that of course was the. That that was what shows like his really were all about, and he admitted. It. Look, um, I think that uh, R- Rush Limbaugh's betrayal of the conservative movement is very much a part of this story. Now, is Rush Limbaugh responsible for Donald Trump? Not necessarily, but if he would have drawn a line and said, "Look, this guy is not what we are about. He is not who we are. He does not share our beliefs." If he would have done that. In, in June or July or August of 2015, when that Trump rocket was just launching, I think I think history would have been very, very different. But um, he didn't. And one of the reasons and I, I sort of I, I, I sort of developed this. It, it is it's only a theory on my part that Rush Limbaugh was afraid to get out of step with he was he was afraid to be outflanked on the right by more populous hosts he was losing audience he was losing radio stations um his career really took a hit after he called that young Georgetown law student a slut um and as a result he no longer had the confidence or the clout to basically say no look um we can't go along with this guy because there were all of these other voices out there who could have uh, who could have rendered him 
superfluous on the right if he would have drawn that line. But again, that's part of the dynamic of the conservative media. The conservative media, and the point you made before, that up until the moment that Trump came along, guys like Limbaugh um, were enforcing an ideological conformity and purity test that if you were not you know, hard line on all of these budget plans that you were a rhino. And then suddenly to watch them pivot and embrace this New York liberal who had been funding Hillary Clinton up until five minutes ago was extraordinary. Uh, you also discuss the role of Fox News um, in Trump's rise. And today, Fox is being called state-run media. Hosts like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity are pretty uh, reliable uh, articulators of of the Trump party line. But that wasn't really the Fox role during the primary. Trump was fighting with Fox a lot of the time in the primary. Can, can you give us some insight about how, the, how complicated that relationship has been? It is very complicated. No, I, uh, when the book first came out, somebody said, boy, you spend a lot of time on conservative media. Maybe that's because you're part of it. And I said, well, yes, that is true. But also because you can't understand Trump separate from conservative media, which I think has become more and more obvious how he was a product of all of that. What's interesting is people now, you know, we need to be reminded that Fox actually was pushing back against Donald Trump for a while. You had Megyn Kelly on. Uh, remember when um, when Donald Trump actually boycotted the Republican presidential debate that was hosted by Fox News? I mean, that seems like a million years ago now, doesn't it? But um, the as the Trumpian and th this is somewhat new and then you always try to separate what's new and what's not the Trumpian media ecosystem, which was really becoming self-aware in, you know, in 2015, 2016, uh, centered around Breitbart and many other satellites really started beating up on Fox. And the same phenomenon that I saw with Limbaugh, you started seeing with Fox, that Fox is looking over its shoulder and going, OK, do we you know, here's our people. They're going off over here. There's this uh, this nativist populist uh, movement. Um, are, are we at risk of becoming superfluous if we don't do that? And, you know, folks like Breitbart pounded on them and pounded on them and pounded on them. And ultimately, they acquiesced so that by the end of the primaries, even Ted Cruz was saying, that uh, Rupert Murdoch had turned uh, Fox into a giant super PAC for Donald Trump. And that's only gotten worse since the election. I mean, uh, you know, the, 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 the hiring of Tucker Carlson, getting rid of George Will as a, uh, as a contributor, uh, hiring Laura Ingram, and the conduct of Sean Hannity uh, does make it. If it's not, not state-run media, it's hard to imagine what state-run media would look like that would be different than what Fox News does. Uh, is there any um, chance that conservative media could still turn on Trump? You know, I have seen Ann Coulter, for example, criticize Trump when he couldn't get border wall funding uh, in the most recent uh, spending bill. Uh, is, is is there something that are there policies like that that tie what exists in, in conservative media, or has the lion's share just become part and parcel of uh, a Trump propaganda echo chamber? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I actually wrote a piece called The Conscience of Ann Coulter. And, and and the whole point was that she was kind of an outlier. She was one of the very, very, very few people who, uh, yes, she obviously bought into the cult of personality, but because she expected something, something dumb, um, I think was was the wall. But I think she's an outlier. and I And I think that for people who think that there's an issue that's going to break this whole – um, I, I think they are being somewhat naive about 
the way in which this has become not just tribal, but uh, a cult of personality based. Uh, now, is there is there any scenario that might change this? Um, yeah, I and, and again, this is purely theoretical. Um, but if let's just say that the Democrats take control of Congress and Donald Trump pivots to the left in order to get things done, um, what would happen then? Uh, what if he let Chuck Schumer pick the next Supreme Court justice? Would there be a break? Um, I, I, I think the the tempting answer is to say, yes, that would be enough. But watching the way in which it has become so us versus them, how conservatism is no longer about anything other than being in opposition to the left, even that might not be enough. You also discussed the role of uh, Matt Drudge in the book, and Drudge is someone who's always befuddled me because I go to the Drudge Report and I see a collection of links and I don't understand why this is so influential and powerful. Uh, I mean, I can understand why it was influential in the late 90s, but it seems like the internet sort of moved on and he hasn't yet. There he stands, still driving a lot of traffic and um, pushing a lot of issues. How did he have a role uh, in in the phenomenon of Trump. Well, first of all, you have to understand how influential he was, um, particularly ba- back in the back in the day. He was essentially the uh, the uh, the assignment editor for much of the conservative media. Every conservative talk show host, I'm guessing, you know, started their day looking at the Drudge Report. People at Fox News looked at the Drudge Report, and he did drive traffic in a very dramatic way, so that a lot of you know websites trying to figure out how do you get traction um, would try to game what what do we have to do to get on Drudge. The the specific thing that I focus on in the book is the decision that he made, and I was never able to identify the exact moment, somebody could do this perhaps, when he started linking to Alex Jones in InfoWars. And Alex Jones, as I'm sure your listeners know, is just one of the most bizarre and vile conspiracy theorists out there, a 9-11 truther, a Sandy Hook truther. Um Really, the the kind the, the kind of crackpot that William F. Buckley Jr. had uh, had excommunicated from the conservative movement back in the 1960s. But what Matt Drudge did by linking to him and then increasingly uh, featuring his stuff was to bring Alex Jones and that paranoid conservative mindset into the conservative bloodstream, into the mainstream, so that suddenly this is right next to stories from National Review. This is next to stories from Fox News. And you had other websites that began to peddle things that that were so bizarre and weird, and yet, and this was what was happening below the radar screen for a lot of us, found an audience. And it changed the way I think a lot of the conservative electorate Thought. I mean, think about the moment we're in now where the president of the United States is talking about the, the plots by the deep state, where United States senators are talking about secret societies in the FBI. Think about the level of distrust for our institutions and our norms. Um, those were the kinds of things that you might have found at one point off in these far reaches of the fever swamp. They have now become mainstream in among the conservative, at least the conservative base, if not elected officials. And Matt Drudge played a central role in that happening. How do you get from Alex Jones to to, to Donald Trump? How, how do we get to that moment where Donald Trump, the week after the election, calls up Alex Jones and thanks him for his support? Where Donald Trump goes on Alex Jones's show 
None of that would have happened if it was not for Matt Drudge. And again, you know, this is where the one-time gatekeepers of the conservative movement, I think, betrayed the conservative cause and conservative voters. Having said all this, you end the book on a optimistic note. You do try to give guidance to conservatives to uh, save the ideology and, and resurrect the movement from uh, Trumpist nativism. Uh, what, what, what is your basic advice for those who want to see conservatives, conservatism live beyond Donald Trump? Well, I'm, I'm glad you think it's optimistic because usually I am the most pessimistic person in the room. Um, and, and I'm always hoping that I'm wrong about this because I do think the conservative movement as, as a movement um, is, is badly tainted and, and, uh, and, and toxified by this. And it's going to be a very, very long time for them to get over this. On the other hand, the conservative ideas um, – you know, you know, limited government, uh, you know, maybe respect for the rule of law, all of those things, traditional values, you know, they're going to continue. I mean, there, there are still uh, going to be conservatives who are going to be working at the grassroots level who will do positive things. But on the other hand, we really need to look ourselves in the mirror and really ask. And I, and I, I have to tell you that, you know, there's been a sort of a shattering of faith that I, that I've gone through, which is that, if you're willing to embrace Donald Trump and you're willing to embrace all of his lies, then you know what does this say about your values and your credibility? And do I want to be allied with you anymore? And 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 what does this say about whether or not your other beliefs are compatible with this? If your other beliefs are compatible with this, then doesn't that fundamentally call those into question? I'm going to admit that I have that, those kinds of questions going through my mind. But I do think that uh, um, non-Trumpian conservatives, and there are not that many of us, you may see us a lot on, on cable television, but there are not that many of us. I think that we have to be used to being in the wilderness for some time and being used to being unpopular and being used to being contrarians. And we're going to get hit from both the left and from the right and uh, the only thing you can hope for is that uh, this too shall pass. Stuff changes. And we're living our politics right now in dog years. So we're, we're you and I probably, if I, if I asked you, okay, what was the big story on Monday of this week? <laughs> You'd have to think about it. So to say what politics is going to be like two years from now or four years from now, who knows? Is there a template in this book, How the Right Lost Its Mind, for those of you who are the the anti-Trump conservatives to pounce at an opportune time. Is there going to be a time when maybe there's a bad midterm election for Republicans or maybe Trump does get indicted uh, where you think you can show up and say Trump is, is, is taking us down a bad path and we have an alternative path for you to take? Do you, do you having published the book, having talked about your book in, in front of audiences, do you sense that there is still the seeds of a, of a revitalized conservatism after Trump? I would like to say yes. Um, but, uh, you know, we keep asking, what will it take for Republicans to have their eyes open for Donald Trump? What does he have to do? To do? And the answer is, well, whatever you think that is, it's already happened. <laughs> and we haven't had that reaction. They, they haven't stood up. But, you know, concepts like individual liberty, respect for the Constitution, free markets, personal responsibility, civility, all of the, those things, you know, they're, they're still valuable. And, uh, you know, it, it is hard to see through, you know, and again, the focus of this book is not on Trump. It's on what has happened to the conservative movement. And every month that goes by, 
uh, he changes the standards and what conservatives are willing to accept. He changes the culture. And so it becomes more and more difficult to snap back. You know, this will not be over when Donald Trump leaves the political stage and it won't be measured in terms of just political uh, policy. Uh, I, I, I do think, and this is where my, my main concern will be, is, is will the conservative mind, um, its values, its ability to determine what is true, what is not true, what is right, what is wrong, will it have been so distorted by this, uh, by this Trumpian era um, that it won't be able to come back? I mean, you know, think about the next time there's a Democratic president um, and, and, and there are ethical uh, or credibility issues. Is there any Republican that's going to credibly be able to criticize that person? Of course, it will happen. It will be on Fox News, but I don't know. I mean, I wish I could end on a more positive note. In the book, I, you know, I do say, you know, people have to, you know, stick to their principles. Um, some sometimes uh, winning is not everything. Uh, you know, we, we're in this era now where every election is of the apocalypse. Every election is seventeen seventy six. Well, you know what? Uh, it's not. And it sometimes is more important to remember who you are, stand firm in the truth, which seems like such a such an anodyne thing to say, but is becoming more and more important um, rather than care about this election or that election. So if, if I have one source of optimism, it's the fundamental decency of the American public. But that's also one of the reasons why I'm so appalled by Trump, because I think that Trump and Trumpism is an assault on that fundamental decency. The book is How the Right Lost Its Mind, published by St. Martin's Press. Uh, The author is Charlie Sykes. Thank you so much for being on New Books and Politics. Hey, it's been my pleasure.